0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Somil Trivedi, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU, and your host. February, of course, marks Black History Month, a time to recognize the significant achievements and culture of Black Americans, from bell hooks to Beyonce, and also to honor an accurate history about them, a history that we know is rife with discrimination and abuse. Think slavery, Jim Crow, and the structural racism we're still infected with today. Sadly, more and more, this history is being challenged and even erased in our culture, and right now in our schools, through tactics like curriculum restrictions and outright book bans. Truths about Black history that we once considered hard but self-evident are now being erased before our eyes. Over 30 state legislatures across the country have introduced bills to limit the discussion of racial history in a wave prompted by the emergence of critical race theory as a subject of political fear-mongering. But that's just the beginning. Over 300 books by predominantly Black authors discussing race, gender, and sexuality were also banned in the last year alone. Yep, you heard me right. We're banning books again. So when your history is banned, how do you learn about your ancestors? How do we learn from what's happened in the past and how it affects our present? When your culture is banned, how do you see yourself? How do you belong? How do you celebrate the stories, music, food, and family that made you? Here at the ACLU, we believe that the First Amendment is so fundamental because it should stop this kind of erasure in its tracks. That's why we're meeting this surge of censorship with new litigation and fierce advocacy. Joining us today to share more is Emerson Sykes, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Longtime listeners will remember Emerson is one of At Liberty's former hosts. Emerson, I've listened to you at the helm of this podcast so many times, I'm pretty excited to have you on the other side of the mic. So thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's like the, the two Spider-Man meme.
0: That's right. I think I'm the evil one, but sure. <laughs> um... Before we dive into today's topic uh, about Black culture and, and free speech, I think we have to cover the big news that Justice Breyer is retiring after almost 30 years on the court, as well as the news that President Biden will stick to his campaign pledge of appointing a Black woman to the Supreme Court. I'd love your thoughts on all of this, particularly in the context of our conversation today about free speech and Black culture.
1: Well, you know, I don't consider myself a a court commentator. Of course, you know, we are litigating First Amendment cases with a judiciary across the country that has been dramatically shifted to the right over the last two decades. Of course, most notably and most visibly, that has been on the Supreme Court. And we see on a, you know, recently it's been on an almost daily basis, the impact that having a 6-3 conservative-liberal quote-unquote split on the Supreme Court is having on our legal system. So, you know, I will be pleased if we get a new justice soon who is capable and uh, has empathy for those who have been on the margins of our society and, and trampled by our legal system for generations. But I am also under no delusion that whoever comes into that seat you know, it's not going to tip the battle, t- tip the balance, even within the Supreme Court. Never mind the legal system as a whole.
0: Agreed. I think we should be clear-eyed about the numbers game at the current Supreme Court. On the other hand, uh, having a black woman up there for the first time might mean something for culture, maybe more so than law. What do you think?
1: Definitely. You know, see, representation matters, as the old saying goes, and seeing people, watching people, especially, you know not just the, vis- the visuals, of course the visuals matter, but also what we saw with Thurgood Marshall was it wasn't just that there, we knew that there was a black man sitting up there, but in his opinions, he brought his whole self to that work. I think, you know, as we've seen Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor add so much, not only with their legal brilliance, uh, but with their life experience and empathy uh, and clarity of sort of moral
0: purpose. You know, I'm glad you brought up Justice Marshall because he's exactly the kind of person who is being erased from curriculums before our very eyes. So let's shift to the debate around critical race theory and black history and culture. Uh, let's first lay the groundwork. Can you just remind folks, what is critical race theory? How is it different from simply teaching the history of race discrimination? How is it the same?
1: It's a good question. The The status quo for generations in the United States has been to present a whitewashed history in our public schools. Over the course of several generations, we have tried and been very successful, I would say, in trying to present a more nuanced, diverse, multicultural view and comprehensive view about the history of our country, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And one strain of that effort has been within the legal academy, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, Professor Derek Bell, many, many others have contributed to what has come to be known as critical race theory as a way of analyzing the way that race plays itself out in our legal system in explicit, implicit, intentional and unintentional ways. At the same time, what we've seen is a weaponization of this term CRT by, I, I hesitate to use his name in, in interviews, but there's this guy, Chris Rufo, who basically stumbled upon, happened upon the idea that he could take this phrase, which describes uh, a particular legal discipline or, or theory within the legal discipline, and he was just going to pack everything that makes people feel uncomfortable about, quote, unquote, wokeness, about, quote, quote-unquote, cancel culture. None of these things that actually, when you dig down, actually mean what they might mean on first read. But this was the new sort of catchphrase, the new catch-all to sort of dump people's anxieties into. And so then President Trump caught wind of this idea, and this is the backlash. This is the backlash to an inclusive education, to an education that covers the ways in which race, gender, class, national origin have limited people's opportunities and served as tools of oppression throughout our history as a country up to the present day.
0: I think that's totally right. And I'm glad you raised the point that critical race theory is just a stalking horse for white anxiety. It also does double duty as angering suburban parents who were otherwise fleeing right-wing ideologies. And that brings us to schools. So, uh, Five Republicans controlled states so far have passed laws limiting how schools can teach race and gender. We have a particular litigation addressing this kind of law in Oklahoma called HB 1775. Can you tell us a little bit about HB 1775 and what we're doing to challenge it?
1: This idea was hatched in these conservative think tanks and it you know caught the ear of the former president. He issued an executive order towards the end of his presidency, listing a set of quote unquote divisive concepts that would not be allowed in any uh, trainings for government employees. That law was actually enjoined because it also covered contractors. And so that was enjoined with litigation by uh, Lambda Legal by the Ninth Circuit, Uh, but not taking the hint that this was unconstitutional. As you said in in the intro, Dozens of states at this point have considered these laws and at least nine of them have already been adopted. But one small piece of this is litigation. I'm a staff attorney, you're a staff attorney. What do we do other than do podcasts? We file (laughs) lawsuits. We brought the suit in Oklahoma along with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, the ACLU of Oklahoma, and pro bono counsel at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel. And so we decided that we wanted to file suit in Oklahoma first, in part because the Oklahoma law covers higher education as well as K-12 education, and courts have been uh, more readily recognizing of First Amendment protections within college campuses as a special environment where it's especially abhorrent for the government to try to limit what people teach, learn, say, think. Also because the Oklahoma law uses many of the, quote unquote, divisive concepts that pop up in a lot of these laws. So we think that if we can get a court to strike down some of these in the Oklahoma law, it will help us fight laws with exactly the same language in other places. And I think third is the clients that we lined were able to bring together. The plaintiffs in our case in Oklahoma are able to tell an incredibly compelling story about Oklahoma and the importance of inclusive education. So we have the NAACP of Oklahoma. We have the American Indian Mem- Movement of Indian Territory. We have the um, professors from the Oklahoma- from Oklahoma University. Uh, we have the Black Emergency Response Team, a Black student activist group on the campus of Oklahoma University, as well as representing individual teachers, public school teachers, and. Uh, individual public school students. And so I think, you know, fr- through our plaintiffs' experiences over the last four months now where this law has been in place is it has wrought confusion. Uh, it has had a chilling effect on what teachers are feeling brave enough to present because the law creates a, a situation whereby if a, if a teacher violates or, or presents one of these quote-unquote divisive concepts, even in the context of saying, this is what some people thought, even though it was wrong. You can't even mention these things according to this law. And if you do, you risk your teaching license. And that threat has hung over the heads of these teachers uh, and impacted the education of these students for the last four months. And so we've asked a federal judge, uh, not only to rule that the law is unconstitutional, but to block its enforcement Uh, During the course of the litigation. So our preliminary injunction motion is currently pending. You
0: know, I'm glad you mentioned that amongst your coalition of very impressive plaintiffs are both students, teachers, administrators. This is these are all of the relevant stakeholders in a school saying we don't want this. And yet politicians from above are imposing these kind of restrictions So, you know, it's always dicey, two lawyers talking to each other about the law, but can you explain at a high level, why are these bans in Oklahoma and elsewhere a violation of the First Amendment?
1: It's a great question. So we actually have four different claims in Oklahoma. The first claim is actually sort of, it's not even really a First Amendment claim, it's a due process claim. So the first argument is that these laws are unconstitutionally vague. So we say that they are on plain reading, A reasonable person who is subject to the law cannot understand what is prohibited and what is permitted, and the ambiguity of the text leaves the door open to discriminatory and arbitrary enforcement by regulators, right? That's the vagueness claim. Then we have two different First Amendment claims. One is around the fact that this is an overbroad and viewpoint discriminatory regulation of academic freedom in the university context, and that impacts professors, teaching assistants, staff members, uh, students. Many people are teachers, learners, researchers all at the same time, and they have administrative jobs as well. Right. So there's this idea in the law that the First Amendment protects academic freedom, particularly in higher education, because we want as few regulations inhibiting free thought in those places that we entrust with coming up with the new ideas that are going to improve uh, our country and our world. Right. So there's an inherent skepticism around laws that limit academic freedom.
0: And this is the place where liberals, libertarians, conservatives have traditionally come together that we want as few limits on academic freedom as possible. And yet here, that doesn't seem to be the case for some of them.
1: I have been disappointed, if not especially shocked, at the relative silence from the so-called academic freedom brigade. Some of them have written a blog piece or two about how these might not be such a great idea, but we haven't seen uh, that coalition really come together in strong voice saying this is this is a mistake. I think just to finish up the list of the, so the, the, of the four claims, the, the other two I think are particularly interesting as well. One is around the right to receive information. And this is a first amendment claim on behalf of students, both in higher education and in K-12. So we talk we talk about the first amendment protecting free speech like the right to speak, but it also protects the right of listeners and the right to receive information and the right to access information. And so the courts have recognized that students have a specific First Amendment right to receive education without undue political partisan influence and without any reasonable relationship to a legitimate pedagogical or educational interest. And the last claim we bring is a equal protection claim, which is explicitly saying that uh, this law was passed with racial animus and intent and has had a racially disparate impact uh, because these laws especially negatively impact the experience of students of color, though inclusive education is good for all students. uh, But we've seen that sort of This narrative around protecting white students from guilt, discomfort, or anything of those those words are actually in many of these statutes, guilt, anguish, or discomfort. Uh, And it's implicit, if not explicit, that it's protecting the discomfort of white students. And so we think that that is very directly at the expense of students of color.
0: I think that's an important point because it's not as though these laws are targeting the guilt or anguish or discomfort that black students or other minorities might feel from the traditional teaching of US history that you and I might've received when we were growing up. I felt supremely uncomfortable about a lot of the things that I learned in school, but I learned them anyway.
1: Exactly, right, it's discomfort for whom, and it's, it really illustrates that you put teachers in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? Because. They present a whitewashed history and they're selling their students short and especially, uh, you know, having a negative impact on their students of color who don't see themselves in their curriculum. But if you do cover these issues, you risk somebody, anybody complaining, starting an investigation and find yourself out of a job. So you really are really between a rock and a hard place. And that's what we think, you know, a federal judge, even if they let's say are not quote unquote card carrying members of the ACLU can recognize that the legislature can't put teachers in such an impossible situation.
0: Right. And that should be a universal principle. So as I mentioned at the top, there's another wave of bills that are allegedly about transparency, uh, trying to make public the curriculum and school plans of teachers across the country. So this is happening in at least 12 States, maybe more. Um, I want to bring up a slight tension and see if you can address it. In the past, groups like the ACLU have fought for transparency laws, even in schools uh, in Nevada and Kentucky, because we as civil libertarians think that if the government is going to take our tax dollars and operate on our behalves, then we ought to know what they're doing. Um, How are the current wave of transparency laws different?
1: It's a great question. Look, we at the ACLU have always been and will always be pro-transparency. We think just like the these other bills claim to be cracking down on CRT when in fact that's not what they're doing. I think a lot of these bills that are under the umbrella of transparency are not really about transparency at all. But what we're seeing here is a situation where they're trying to use transparency as a shield to, to create this witch hunt. And it's tied to all of these other bills. Now. It's tricky, right? Because actually the same guy, this Rufo character, Mm -hmm. recently showed his hand. He he tweeted in a thread that, hey, listen, guys, these bans are probably going to be found to be unconstitutional. So we need to pivot. And we're going to own the libs because we're going to pivot to transparency bills. And then we're going to put them in a situation where they have to be against transparency. And it's going to be hilarious. And full disclosure... It, it's it's working on some level, right? It does put us in a tricky position. But I think, you know, as I said, we are obviously have always been and will always be pro-transparency. Uh and we think that, you know, the the these bills, some of them billed as transparency bills, are really actually efforts to silence and censor uh and and create a situation where teachers are afraid to teach uh you know, quote unquote, controversial topics.
0: Right. So this is the political strategy that we've been talking about throughout this taping, that these bills are not meant to achieve their stated statutory goal. They're meant to rile up a base uh, into and, and stoke years and decades old fears about an inclusive, multiracial society that we have started building here in the United States. And so um, how do you feel about the fact that black culture is just collateral damage in this political game? What do you feel about the First Amendment becoming collateral damage in this game?
1: There's a a quote from Steve Bannon that's been passed along to me. I don't know if it's directly true or not. But basically, he said, you know, it's great news for the conservative movement if the torchbearers for them are not QAnon and they're not white nationalists, but they're mothers and concerned parents at school boards, right? So if the culture wars are being fought by concerned white parents, uh, you know, that is an important, uh, important thing to recognize because that's different than than the folks who are storming the Capitol, and I think the other the 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 conservatives have really tapped in to this underlying racial anxiety, even in folks who might not have necessarily even supported Donald Trump. So that's why I think it's a particularly dangerous way that you know the the mental gymnastics and the sort of rhetorical jujitsu that they have pulled, where they are quoting Martin Luther King to support laws that ban the teaching of what actually happened to Martin Luther King. Uh, and the idea that talking about racism is actually the problem and that's the actual racism. Uh, and the the sort of way that this has been flipped around has made it difficult for our comms team to figure out how to how to talk about what's actually going on here. Right. Uh, but like you said, the legal piece is just one one small part of it.
0: So now we go from curriculum restrictions uh, to transparency to outright banning books altogether. So that's what I want to talk about next. Uh, You know, reports out of Oklahoma, the state where you're suing, have said that um, school districts are banning classics like To Kill a Mockingbird and A Raisin in the Sun. Um, They're also banning newer books like Jerry Craft's New Kid and the young adult novel All American Boys. What's the significance of moving towards banning books? How is that a sign of the more serious cancer that we're dealing with?
1: It was interesting. You know, in your intro, you said we're banning books again. I think in many ways, we've never stopped banning books. Right. Uh, you know, we've been banning books in prisons for quite some time. We've also filed some cases around that. Uh, there have been ongoing efforts, especially over the last 10 years, around banning books uh, regarding LGBTQ folks. Uh, you might re- remember the controversy around Drag Queen Story Hour, but there have also been books pulled from libraries because they depict LGBTQ characters, you know, many times. And our our ACLU attorneys have been litigating this issue uh, for quite some time. So, what's old is new again. Now, what we have seen is a is an is an uptick. Our colleagues at the American Librarians Association have said that in their decades of experience looking at these things, there has been an actual increase recently. Uh, And I think it really just does go back to this idea. You know, I've seen the slide decks that are going around and, you know, there are 70 something slides about how you can be involved in the fight against CRT. These are all, you know, from a very specific playbook and it's under the guise of empowering parents. But the idea is, you know, the, the, the First Amendment is particularly protective of the idea of banning books. So again, this should be an area where liberals, conservatives, moderates, everybody should be shocked that American schools and libraries are pulling books. Um, but, you know, it's become a part of this cultural narrative. This I don't want to use the word culture war, but this sort of ongoing debate about who we are. And I think people are having trouble seeing seeing through their, you know, the, the political valences to some of the sort of core free speech issues at
0: play. Well, and the hypocrisy is so transparent when you know that most of these parents read these books when they were kids and never protested before, right? But all of a sudden it becomes an issue. So, Emerson, we have talked a lot about schools, but it's bigger than schools. You just mentioned that you've done work around banning rap music in prisons. Uh, I know that artists like Jay-Z and Kelly Rowland and Killer Mike are uh, supporting uh, legislation to prevent prosecutors from using rap songs as evidence of alleged crime. How is the culture... Being erased or bastardized alongside this very particular movement in schools.
1: It's an interesting point. The thing that keeps coming back to me is we talk about Black History Month and the importance of dealing with hard issues and reckoning with the reality, of the you know, brutality of our past. But you know, as the, child, as the parent of two young black kids, you know, it's also really important to me that Black History Month is filled with black joy and culture and music and art and literature and all of those wonderful things. And so as much as many of these bands on CRT are trying to avoid discussions about racism in particular, I think it also sweeps in so much of black culture because that's an inevitable thread. Even in the books that celebrate family and growth and exploration that element of racism and the racial hierarchy in the United States is usually going to be there, right? And so I think, you know, for me, it's in prisons especially, what is considered a dangerous idea? You know, if, if in the schools we're really concerned about what's going to make white students feel uncomfortable, in the prisons the idea of what is a threatening idea is an entirely different calculation, but it also likewise sweeps in a vast swath of Black culture and art, that has an element of anger in it, that has an element of recognition of oppression and and an impulse to fight authority. And so we've seen prisons given essentially carte blanche by the courts. As long as they say it's security related. They can do whatever they want in most circumstances. We recently got a good win in the Ninth Circuit where the Ninth Circuit in this case where an, a, uh, a, a person who's incarcerated had requested a bunch of CDs and religious texts uh, in Arizona. Arizona Department of Corrections. They have these totally un- unconstitutional policies and they prohibited this person from accessing Kendrick Lamar, The Weeknd, several other hip-hop artists, uh, as well as texts by Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. So recently, the Ninth Circuit actually did say, look, there is at least an arguable case that Arizona is applying its policy in a discriminatory way and it's letting in all sorts of graphic TV shows, movies, books, songs, but not allowing in explicit hip-hop music. Of course every brief that we write on this has to reference Johnny Cash and all of the country musicians who have you know violent imagery in their in their songs. So there's that at level whereby the Ninth Circuit was very suspicious basically because they said, is is this hip-hop music really worse than all of these other things that you're letting in?" Uh, and there we see that you know I think it's important for courts to be able to tell prison systems that you can't do whatever you want, especially when uh, it starts to take on this really racialized
0: component. And let's be clear for our listeners, no one wants to ban Johnny Cash either, right? I love me some Johnny Cash. The point is, let it all in. And that's the First Amendment principle that we're talking about.
1: Well, it's, if, if, if you don't think that Johnny Cash really shot a man in Reno, then why do you believe that The Weeknd really is going to do every single thing that he says in his songs?
0: Exactly. So, Emerson, moving forward, how can listeners of this podcast get involved and turn this tide?
1: It's a really important question. We've seen bills pending in state legislatures across the country. So find out if one of these bills is being introduced in your state, see who's active, see if you can get involved in pushing back against these bills And I think you know this is at the state level, this is also at the local and district level. And as I said, in my own PTA, this advocacy is happening. So I think there are lots and lots and lots of ways to be involved uh, from the school level all the way up to the national level. And I think the main thing is if it's important to you that kids are able to learn about a variety of viewpoints and, and a nuanced and contextualized age-appropriate introduction to American history, uh, there's all sorts of ways that you can be involved.
0: So I'm glad you brought up black joy. I don't want to be a downer all the way through this podcast. And you mentioned music and literature and art. Um, What are some of the music you're listening to right now? What are you reading? What's bringing you joy right now?
1: It's a great question. Uh, What's bringing me the most joy, to be honest, is that after seven months of rehab on a Fractured Ankle, I'm Running Again. So that's the biggest source of joy. Uh, Congrats. The music that I'm listening to right now is, you know, a whole nother show about whether it's Black music or not. Uh, but I'm listening to Adele on repeat. I've now gone back into the old albums because I've worn 30 out. Um, but there's also a song that is right now the dance hit of my family. And um, Kendall, the producer, will remember that I was on a Christmas episode about favorite songs and I had this like African dance song. So the current iteration of that is this song called Ponte by Montparnasse Musique. And I hope that you can play a clip of it because it's the best song out there right now.
0: That's great. So I want to thank you so much, Emerson, for rejoining the podcast this week as a a guest um, and enlightening us about uh, both Black history and Black joy. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, be well and do good.